Let's pray. Father, we come to you with gratitude for the hours that we've spent studying the Gospel of John. We thank you for those who have served. Um, we thank you for all the lessons you've taught us as we study John, and we thank you for the fellowship that we have as believers. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start today by talking about endings. Um, when you come to the end of a book and the author either closes the story neatly where everything's resolved, all the conflicts are tied up, the heroine gets her guy, um, or sometimes the author leaves it open and it's filled with mystery and you wonder what happens and you're left to write the ending. So in considering the end of the Gospel of John, it made me think about the last lines of some great books, such as the tale of two, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, which ends with these words by the dissolute lawyer Sidney Carton. He becomes an unlikely hero when he lays down his life for somebody else and he goes to the guillotine. And as he's going to the guillotine, Carton says, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And these words bear more certainty than the last lines of something like Plato's Apology of Socrates, which is, was written to over 2,000 years ago, 400 BC, before the life of Christ. And Socrates says, but now the time has come to go away. I go to die and you to live, but which of us goes to the better lot is known only to God. So on a lighter note, you might recognize <laughs> a novel from the 1930s. It was very popular, became um, one of my favorite movies. Uh, it ends like this. Tomorrow, I'll think of some way to get him back. After all, tomorrow is another day. Do you know it? My dad used to call it Call of the Wild because <laughs> I loved it so much, Clark Gable. Um, so human hearts crave narratives. We want good stories. We want heroism and redemption in our stories. We want intrigue. We want justice. We want romance and passion. And you can see people's desire for thrilling narratives played out in sports arenas, you know, football. I used to work with a bunch of guys an office that was probably 75% men. And it cracked me up the way they would talk about we when they referred to their teams. Like, either the Mavericks or the Cowboys, it was always we. Like, you're not on the coaching staff and you're not a player. But they in, they inserted themselves in those narratives. That's It's important. That drama is important. It's something the human heart craves. And sometimes, you know, you also see it play out in movie theaters and in books. And sometimes we want to escape from reality in a narrative. And sometimes we want stories that resonate with our lives. Characters who go through similar things that we go through. And my heart craves beautiful narratives. And I'm not talking about like saccharine pulp. Um, no offense to Hallmark, but every time my mom watches a Hallmark movie, I tell her, I know how it's going to end. <laughs> Um, you know, there, it's, there's something very redemptive about when all does end well. Um, but I, I crave stories that reflect goodness and truth and beauty. And there's times when I've come to the end of a really good book and I felt a, 
or even as I'm reading, I feel a very deep sense of contentment, even joy. Or as I'm coming to the end of a good story, my heart sometimes aches because the book's about to be over. Um, and it's just been so meaningful to me. So rather than pain, as we come to the conclusion of John, it fills my heart with wonder. I've always loved that last verse of the chapter. It's, and we're coming to the end of one of the greatest narratives ever written, which is, on the whole, a description of the ministry and the works of Jesus Christ. And the narrative is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written down by John. So when John writes those last words, he opens a door just a crack into a universe of miracles that we can only imagine. When he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's hyperbolic, but it's also meaningful in that we've been told what we need to know. I personally want to read those books that, that can't be written. I want to know what Jesus did, but there's a reason that we haven't been given those stories. John concludes the gospel with these words because he's recognizing that in the narrative of Jesus's ministry and his passion, his resurrection, it's not exhaustive what he's telling us. He's basically saying, I recognize you don't have everything, but what you have is enough to form a foundation of belief. Um, of John's conclusion, J.C. Ryle says, there is enough to make every unbeliever without excuse, enough to show every inquirer the way to heaven, enough to satisfy the heart of every honest believer, enough to condemn man if he does not repent and believe, enough to glorify God. Furthermore, Calvin argues that the Gospels in their entirety make known to us all that God knew to be necessary for us, who alone is wise and the only fountain of wisdom. So, just like John is a little speculative at the end, I like to think that someday in heaven it's in the realm of possibility that we'll know more about the earthly ministry of Jesus. But even if we're not able to look back in time, it's not going to matter because we're going to be living in the full radiance of Jesus Christ, with unveiled faces every single day of our lives, will be filled with the glory, the majesty, and the beauty of our triune God. We'll be living in a story that is good and true and beautiful, and it's not, nor ever will it be a fairy tale, um, where everyone lives, every ha everyone lives happily ever after and the bad guys go to jail. It's, not, it's so much more than happily ever after. We, we've only seen glimpses of that glory. All that God is will be revealed to us someday. All that love and all that power, which we can't see fully in this world, that's going to be our forever reality. So having reversed the natural order of things by talking about the end of the first, now I'm going to go to the beginning. Um, I want to return to the beginning of this chapter and consider what the chapter teaches us about God. First, we know that Jesus has appeared to his disciples two times before the scene in John 21. And the narrative details that are in this chapter are important. John says that Jesus revealed himself to, again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So this tells us a couple of things. 
we know that in his resurrected form, Jesus shows himself at will. And this already this affirms what we've already seen in chapter 20, where he appears to his disciples and it's like he appears in a lock, a room that where the doors are locked. So he can reveal himself at will. And the manner in which Jesus reveals himself here in chapter 1 is also important. It's by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. This is the region where Jesus healed the Roman official's son at Capernaum, which we read about in John 4. It's where he fed the multitude. It's where he walked on water to meet his disciples in a boat. We read about that in John chapter 5. It's important to note that this is also the area where Jesus first called Peter into service. So it's not accidental that we're here again. Um, When he calls Peter into service, that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And it bears retelling because there are several parallels with the calling of Peter and Jesus revealing himself to his disciples in John 21. In Luke's account, Jesus is teaching by the Sea of Galilee and the people are pressing on him. So... He makes a strategic move and he gets in a boat. And so Luke says, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, Simon's, he asked to be put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out to the deep and let your nets, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that when they, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so John was also there, James, some of the same people that were in the boat. Um, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So you can see there's a lot of similarities to the two stories with the, that we've been fishing all night, we caught nothing, and Jesus tells them where to put their nets. In John, Luke 5, they go out into the deep, which was not the norm for the fishers in that northern shore. There were shallow. There are shallows that um, are fed by warm springs, and it's easy to catch the fish. They're much easier than going out in the deep and catching the fish. So in Luke, we've got the the deep water. Put your nets down here, so full that they break, and you know what happens in John twenty one. And Luke says they left everything to follow them. Him, and at the end, towards the end of John twenty one, Jesus specifically says to Peter, "Follow me." So like the Luke narrative, the disciples in John 21 are fishing and people read this, some people read this detail with very critical eyes like, oh, they've given up on following the Lord. They're fishing. They're not doing what Jesus told them to do. But it's important to look at how the gospels speak to each other. And in Matthew, Jesus specifically gives them direction to go to Galilee. So they're waiting for Jesus and they're being productive, um, that their fishing is not an indictment on their, they're not following Christ. They're actively pursuing means to feed themselves while they're waiting for the Lord. So the disciples were fishing at night in the warm shallows. And 
We know they didn't catch any fish. And we know that the boat's about 100 yards off. So that would mean, it could mean that the boat was only like in knee-deep water, which would make sense when Peter gets off the boat. He's not necessarily swimming to the shore. He might be chugging it to the shore in knee-deep water. Um, so they see a man standing on the shore, but in the morning light, he's not recognizable. It's like a twilight time. And then there's that voice that comes and asks them if they have any fish, and they reply that they don't. And the story turns here. The man tells them, like Luke, how to cast their net. And in following his direction, their nets are filled. So you know that John, you, we can speculate that John probably remembers what happened three years ago. And he recognizes that it's the Lord. And Peter is the first one to the shore. So when all the disciples reach the shore, they see that there's that charcoal fire. And what does this tell, the, tell this about God? Like, he can make fire. It's possible <laughs> that that's a miraculous setting there. It's, I, you know, we don't know. Did Jesus go and collect wood and make bread? He could have just made it out of nothing. That's a possibility. So it conveys to us the power that God has over the creative world. But it also conveys that breakfast setting, God's abundance in giving. He does not give, when they get that fish, after he, they obey his directive, he gives them many fish, 153 to be exact. And that detail's not random. It's, it's eyewitness detail. Like there were 153 fish. And the scene also demonstrates Jesus's loving kindness to the disciples. After a long night of fruitless fishing, he makes them breakfast. And similar to his feeding, of the multitude, he takes the bread and the fish and he gives it to the disciples. And lastly, and I think most importantly in this scene, there's an affirmation of Jesus's resurrection once again, um, that he, he came back from death. It's another testimony to the trustworthiness of the account that Christ has risen. And we know that there are seven disciples in that boat. In the Roman world, when they wrote wills, it required seven witnesses to ratify that will. So that there are seven people here is also probably not a random fact. It's seven people who can testify that Christ has risen from the dead. As the narrative continues, we know that it telescopes on Jesus' relationship with Peter. He asks Peter three times, do you love me? And each time Peter affirms his love for the Lord and Jesus tells him to care for his sheep. So after giving him this commission, Jesus tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. And that um, verb can be taken as gird as well. So another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John, following the statement, notes that Jesus said this to show Peter by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And when people were crucified in the Roman world, um, their arms were stretched out on a beam. And testimonies from the first and second century also affirm John's witness that Peter was crucified. And Peter most likely died in the year 67 during the first major wave of persecution against Christians under the emperor Nero, who was a very bad man, not just because he killed Christians. He 
He um, most likely had the city of Rome set on fire so he could rebuild it in the way that he wanted to. And when people, people understood, he was probably behind it. And he started to blame those the Christians who did it. And so that started that wave of persecution. And um, in this, this part of the story where Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him and telling him to, carry, to care for a sheep and telling him what kind of death he will die... He follows that by saying, you know, here, you're going you're to be carried and taken places you don't want to go. But then the last word is, follow me. When Jesus tells Peter to follow him, he's telling him to serve him with his life. And the fulfillment of this calling will be Peter's opportunity to demonstrate his love for the Lord. When the Lord says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. So you're going to show me that you love me by fulfilling the mission that I've given you. One of the glorious things in this section that this section shows us is that the Lord has forgiven Peter for his denial. We know that Peter's denied him three times and he had professed vehemently that he would never fall away. He said, even if I have to die, I will never forsake you. Um, But we know that he did. And we see here that the Lord is restoring that relationship. Um, at the beginning, when Jesus first called Peter, we, we know that the Lord tells him that he's going to fish for men. And now the Lord's telling him, feed my sheep. He's going to get to do both of those things and fulfilling his call by becoming a follower of Jesus who preaches the gospel. So, If we consider that our lives are narratives that are being written by the hand of God, personally, I would not want Jesus to tell me what he told Peter. Um, That when you think about it in that context, it's heartrending. You're going to be taken places you don't want to go. It's a promise of suffering. And yet Jesus said, follow me. You're going to suffer. Now I want you to follow me. We can be grateful that Peter did follow Jesus. Um, the call for us to follow Jesus will most likely, God willing, not include martyrdom for us. Um, but in the Western world, I want to highlight something. We need to be really careful when we use the phrase taking up our cross and following Jesus. Um, because the crosses for most of us may be really light. Um, we do get sick, we get wounded, we get betrayed. There, you know, your kids can be rebellious, your husband can be unfaithful, you can get cancer, your spouse dies, your child dies. We do suffer here, but I want us to consider what people in other parts of the world face because they follow Jesus. Just this month, in the Middle East, um, four Wycliffe Bible translators were assassinated and all their printing equipment was destroyed. And yet the people who are translating, I think there's eight dialects that were being worked on. Uh, The hard drive that had all that information, that was not destroyed. And people who are working on that project plan to stay, even though their colleagues were assassinated. And then this last weekend in Lahore, Pakistan, there were a group of Christians in a park celebrating Easter, and somebody set off a a suicide vest and killed 70 people and injured 
over 300 people. And some of the people killed were Muslims. They weren't all Christians. But that, that's the kind of world that Peter was walking into and going and preaching the gospel in the Roman world. It was very perilous. Um, we know that the Lord's will is going to be worked out on this earth, and it's going to be worked out through different people, in different times, in different places, and through events we probably can't even imagine. So it's important to note that after Jesus tells Peter what's going to happen to him, he basically turns to Jesus and says, what about this guy? Um, I think that's a natural, like we don't get to critique Peter and say, oh, there goes Peter. Um, it's a natural human reaction. Jesus has basically told him, you're going to die. Um, so I think it's natural to say, and this other guy who's been with us all the time, what's going to happen to him? Um, so there's, you know, there's that special bond with Peter and John and Jesus. And Peter would want to know if John's going to have the same ending. And Jesus tells him he needs to mind his own business. And he emphatically states, again, you follow me. What's implicit here is that the call to follow Jesus is without condition, no matter what happens to anyone else. This is your mandate. You follow me. And it's also important for us to remember that this call is freighted. When Jesus says, you follow me, that call coming behind it and filling it up, it's filled with the promises of Christ. That he is the vine. He is the bread. He is the light. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. He sends a helper for Peter, and he's going to do the same for us. You know, there's nothing that you're asked to do that you're not asked to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want us to consider, I didn't mean to get emotional, but when you think about especially when we think about the things that we struggle with in the Western world, they're really easy compared to what Christians have to face on, in other parts of the world. And I pray to God we never have to go through those kinds of things, but they're happening today, and we're really anesthetized to it because our news doesn't highlight it. You have to go looking for those stories, but they're happening in great number today all around the world. I don't want to die like that. But people are, because they follow Jesus. So I want us to consider a few things as we look at this part of the resurrection narrative and what it means for us in our lives. John 21 affirms the exclusive claims of Christ, that he is the Son of God revealed in human form, and it provides testimony to his resurrection from the dead as a man, not a ghost. He ate with his disciples there on the shore. He spoke with them. He revealed himself to them. And he was manifest as a risen man. I also want us to consider the call of Peter. It is a forerunner to our own calling in the kingdom of God. None of us are going to become elders in this church. We're never going to shepherd a, shepherd a flock that's filled with congregants. But we've, given, we've been given work to do in the body of Christ. 
The mandate to feed Christ's sheep is one we can fulfill by practicing true religion and being of service to others for the sake of Christ. And for you moms especially, if you have children at home, you have lambs to shepherd. The natural world, as we know, is hostile to the exclusive claims of Christ. It's hostile to the gospel, and we live in times that exalt things that do not bring glory to God. This is not new. There's, you know, our times, we can look at the times and say things are getting worse. Things were bad in Jesus' time in the Roman world. So, this, you know, sin is sin. This is not new. But I think that parents have um, particular challenges today in raising their children. I, I mean, I can only speak for America. <laughs> in raising their children in a world that's full of allurements that are in your face. You know, things are not um, as hidden as they, you know, sin is more out there. Um, just think about the stories that are told in our contemporary culture via movies and TV. Um, so many of them are filled with horror and murder and infidelity and drunkenness and vile speech. Um, I'm not trying to say you're bad for watching certain shows. <laughs> My favorite TV show, the protagonist is an alcoholic who cheats on his wife constantly. It's a really well, I mean, it, the initials are MM. Um, and it takes place in New York City. Um, it's just a really well-told story. But there's a lot of junk that we can consume in our culture. And I'm not trying to suggest that we become Puritans, but there are stories that contend for the peace of Christ in our hearts. And the Apostle Paul admonishes us to think on the true, the honorable, the just, the pure, the lovely, the peace of Christ and the love of Christ must dwell in us if we're going to serve other people well. We must also maintain here in our lives today, this is why this time is really important, we must maintain a high view of Scripture as we journey through this life. The Bible contains the words of life. And the more we learn to love God's Word, the more it's going to change us. We don't sing this hymn here, but it is in the Trinity hymnal. It's hymn 697, Wonderful Words of Life. I love this hymn. I sang it as a child growing up. Uh, First verse is, Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. So that sounds like a prayer. God, stir up your word in my heart. I, and that song blesses me today. Sometimes if I'm in a bad mood, I will turn it, turn it on like a YouTube video and listen to old hymns that we don't sing here in this church. And it's not because of there's any reason, but we, you just can't sing every song. But there's, I can go back to those moments when, as a child, I had um, a really deep confidence in the Lord. And those hymns did stir up my faith. And so I'll go back to those and listen to them sometimes. And they will always help me shift. So finally, um, I want to say that we have the same responsibility as Peter did, and that's to follow Christ, to seek to please him and to act by his authority, no matter what we're doing. And we all have talents that are entrusted to us. We're not going to be doing the same thing. Like, you know, Peter was called to do one thing. John was called to do another. Same thing in a church. We all have different gifts. We all have different callings. We all have the gospel given to us, and we all have Jesus as an example. 
and we're going to struggle to follow him. That's just the nature of being a human in the world. But we have to cultivate a relationship with Christ that's dependent, trusting in his mercy to complete his work in us. And of serving the Lord, Charles Spurgeon says this, We have nothing to consecrate to him to consecrate to him but the gift we have of having first received him. You are weak. You feel it. But what says your God to you? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. He can make you useful, though you have no extraordinary endowments. God can bless you far above what you think to be your capacity. For it is not a question of your ability but of his aid. As we conclude here today, my hope is that we can all live in the fullness of God's grace, that we will all have, like Peter, lives that bring glory to God. And when the last lines of our stories are written, I hope we all get to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm going to end with a prayer from Psalm 90. I think it's always good to let God have the last word. So let's pray. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80 Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord of our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Lord, we ask you to help us to love and serve you faithfully. We thank you for the faithfulness of so many servants of this church. We ask your blessing on the people who watch the children during this study, Lord. And we pray that you would continue to change us and make us more like your son for his sake. We ask these things in his name. Amen.